Menin edithea, Peleidio Achilleos, Olomenoin he mudi Achaeus, Alge Ethike, Polas diphthimus psukas ede proiapsen heroon, Autus de heloria tuke cunesin hoio noisi te passi, Dios teleto bule. That is literally the first stanza of the Iliad in my admittedly awful butchered Ionic Greek. Um, I wanted to introduce it, our discussion today with that particular passage because today we are going to talk about the actual language and style that Homer is going to be using throughout his epic poems, most notably the Iliad but also the Odyssey. Um, admittedly, if I was in an actual classroom, I'd have this sucker written on the board so we could talk about it extensively. As it is... We're just going to talk about it. Um, I will probably refer to the Greek fairly often during this class in order to illustrate certain important components of that particular passage. Um, for now, let's leave it as an example of how the Greek in fact sounds and works, much as I may have butchered it in the process. I know I missed at least one long syllable there and made it short, alas. Um, but like I said, today we are talking about the Iliad on the ground level. Last time we were talking about the content of the Iliad and the Odyssey, the whole Trojan War cycle and the mythic tradition surrounding it. Today we are talking about this as an actual thing, as an object, as a work of literature. We are going to be looking at this not as a myth maker, but as a writer, and see exactly what Homer is doing here. And obviously the first thing that we really need to emphasize is that we're going to spend basically the entire class not reading the Greek. So, you know, don't panic. I'm not going to have you learn Greek in order to read the Iliad. Um, we're working in translation here, and we're going to be looking very deeply at this translation, which can often be fairly misleading because translations are never exactly the same as the original work. Um, and that's the first thing that I really want to drive home today. The first point that I really want to discuss, and I want to discuss it in some significant detail here, is what the Italians would have said once upon a time, uh, tradutiore tratiore, i.e. the translator is always a traitor. Um, we really need to emphasize this, because unlike, say, English classes in high school or comparative literature classes or a lot of other sort of stuff where you, you know, read stuff in translation and don't really dwell on it all that much. When you were hanging out in the classics department, when you were hanging out in the humanities department, when you were hanging out in the philosophy department, being able to access the original text is kind of super important. And the more you study the humanities, the more you will find that language is the key that unlocks all the doors. Um, if we're going to be talking about the Iliad for five weeks and then some, we have to at least talk a little bit about the actual ancient Greek, the process by which we are getting the translation that we have in our hands, and just the whole business of how language works and what exactly we are missing by reading this in English and not in ancient Greek. Again, we're not going to read it in ancient Greek. I'm going to spare you that particular difficulty. Um, as it is, I am not terribly confident in my own ability to read this without, like, poring over it line by line for hours and hours with a lexicon handy. And even then, it's Ionic Greek, and I'm not trained in Ionic Greek. You, you go up to talk to me about Attic Greek or Koine, yeah, I'm your man, but not so much with Ionic. This is literally my first encounter with the Ionic Greek there. 
I think my reading went pretty well, don't you? Um, but anyway, my point here is we are dealing with a translation, and because we are dealing with a translation, we are getting this poem through a series of filters that would not have existed for the original Greek audience. We are going to see distortions in this text, and we're not even going to know their distortions more often than not. Um, all that stuff that we read about in our article on formulas, uh, meter, and type scenes, much of that is going to be just totally missed because we are not going to be reading in pure dactylic hexameter. We are going to be reading in Lombardo's quasi-dactylic version here, where he is, in fact, trying to get the rhythms a little bit, but, you know, with, only with so much success. Um, that's the thing about reading any translation of any poetry. You're going to miss parts. There's going to be elements that just disappear, um, because you cannot successfully render the original language into English without losing some of those dimensions. Um, now, sometimes this is, like, not a big deal. Sometimes the little degrees of meaning really are, aren't that important. Um, you can definitely get the main ideas of the Iliad without doing a series of studies in Ionic Greek and reading Homer in the original Greek. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that a lot of the nuance is frequently lost, and the rhythms, for sure, will be lost. Um, now that said, you might very well ask me, why this translation? Why this translator? The Iliad has been translated dozens of times into English. Um, some of the first translations date all the way back to the 17th century when Alexander Pope and Matthew Chapman took their stand or took their stab at the Iliad. Um, those are both very well received, very famous translations in their own right, and I expect that we might actually look at a couple of them today. Um, but at least one of the things that we need to keep in mind when selecting a translation and when noticing what the translation is doing for us is who is the audience. Um, Obviously, you can translate a work of literature for a wide variety of reasons. Um, like, if you look at all of the various versions of the Bible out there, the English Standard Version, or the King James Version, or the New International Version, or the NASB, or the Message Bible, or any number of other translations, the reason why you can go to a bookstore and see literally dozens of different translations of the Bible is because they do function for different reasons and with different purposes in mind. Um, the New International Version, when it came out back in the 80s and 90s, was intended as a very accessible translation. It was what most translators would call a functional translation. The idea here being that some translations of the Bible and other works of literature are meant to communicate the ideas first and foremost, and you can distort the language as much as you need to, so long as those central ideas, central themes, come through loud and clear. Um, so, for example, our translation here, Lombardo, is predominantly a functional translation. He is not trying to retain the original formulas, much as they will, you know, obviously show up anyway throughout the text. He is not trying to give you a word-for-word -word translation here. He is instead giving you the gist of what's going on, the basic sense of what's happening here. Um, 
Now again, because this is the way translation works, oftentimes it does turn out as a one-to-one -one translation. And you can see some of the ways that this functionality actually doesn't you know, necessarily hold up. Um, some of Lombardo's choices are especially formal, and I admire him for that as well. In fact, as things go, Lombardo is more formal than many of the translations that we might have been looking at otherwise. So for example, take one of those classic old translations, Alexander Pope's translation, of the Iliad, that passage that I read in Greek, which again, we have no idea what it means at this point unless you've actually read the same passage in English, Pope translates it as Achilles' wrath to Greece the direful spring of woes unnumbered heavily, heavenly goddess sing. That wrath which hurled to Pluto's gloomy reign the souls of mighty chiefs untimely slain, whose limbs unburied on the naked shore devouring dogs and hungry vultures tore. Since great Achilles and Atreides strove, such was the sovereign doom and such the will of Jove. Pope is not trying to do a formal translation here. And in fact, if he was, he would be doing a very shitty job of it. Um, he does not fully appreciate the nuances of the Greek text, probably because the scholarship back in the 17th century wasn't as incisive as ours today. But also, he goes out of his way to make a more poetic description of what's going on that doesn't line up with the actual Greek words. So, for example, he starts with the phrase Achilles' wrath, which is kind of right. So the first word that I read in the Greek, and it is in fact the first word of the Greek text, is mainen, which is the word for rage. And we'll talk about exactly how the Greeks managed to put mainen as the beginning of the, of the passage, you know, in a little bit. Suffice it to say that the rage is the important thing here. And you'll notice if you check our own translation, you'll see the same thing. Uh, Lombardo starts, rage, sing goddess Achilles' rage, black and murderous that cost the Greeks incalculable pain, pitched countless souls of heroes into Hades' dark, and left their bodies to rot as feasts for dogs and birds as Zeus's will was done. Now again, you can see the same basic elements in Pope that you see in Lombardo. We know this is about Achilles' wrath, that's extremely important. We know that it has caused a great deal of suffering to the Greeks, um, as Pope writes it, of woes unnumbered, heavenly goddess sing, whereas Lombardo phrases it as incalculable pain, pitched countless souls of heroes in Hades dark. And you'll notice both of them get that as well. Um, Pope picks up on the Hades reference, although he translated into the Roman name Pluto. Um, Lombardo keeps Hades because, you know, we're more accepting of the Greek terminology than the Roman terminology, as was popular in Pope's day. Um, we both Get, have the reference of people lying, like dead bodies, lying on the shore for dogs and birds to rip them apart. Um, but notice that Lombardo emphasizes, as Zeus's will was done, where Pope leaves that for after the discussion of Achilles and Atreides' strove, the fight between Achilles and Agamemnon. Um, in the Greek, that's correct. Lombardo is right. Pope is the one who's moving all the stuff around. What's more, we get these these images in Pope, like the direful spring of woes unnumbered, or Pluto's gloomy reign. Um, these are very much poetic inter interpolations. Pope is not just creating a translation here. He is creating a work of art in its own right. Pope's translation is gorgeous, but it is very much Pope's, not Homer. Lombardo, on the other hand, 
He is doing something similar. He has his own stylistic agenda in place, but his touch is a lot more subtle as far as that's concerned. So his translation does seem very one-to-one. -one. Rage, sing goddess Achilles' rage, is shockingly comparable to the original Greek. Um, like, literally word for word here, with one very important exception, and that's Peleadio, i.e. son of Peleus. In the original Greek, the first line reads, Menin, i.e. rage, um, Eide, sing thea goddess, of the son of Peleus, Peleadio Achilleos, son of Peleus Achilles. Now notice, neither Pope nor Lombardo includes the son of Peleus bit in there. And you might ask yourself, well, why not? Like, both of them are trying to translate this poem accurately. Why would they leave out this son of Peleus business? Well, part of this is because this is formulaic. You will frequently run across Achilles being referred to as the son of Peleus. And depending on what your translator thinks of these formulas, depending on the theory that your translator holds about these formulas, you'll get a different reaction to it. So you'll know in our article that we read about formulas, about the way that these formulas work, you'll notice that our author specifically said that many scholars, many thinkers, consider these formulas to be purely ornamental and to not have a great deal of meaning in and of themselves. So this whole son of Peleus Achilles business is really important to the Greeks because it helps to fill out the meter, helps to make all of the beats fall in the right place, but it isn't terribly significant to meaning. So for functional translators who are not interested in the actual language but are interested in the meaning of the words can go ahead and throw it out without any problem. Pope doesn't care about son of Peleus. If you added Achilles' wrath or Achilles the son of Peleus' wrath to grease the direful spring, you'd have all these extra crazy syllables that are really unhelpful and that muck up the works. Pope is trying to retain a certain poetic uh, beauty here. Um, whereas a translator like, say, Samuel Butler in the Victorian era in the late 19th century, who is working on a prose translation instead of a poetic translation, will say, Sing, O goddess, the anger of Achilles, son of Peleus, that brought countless ills upon the Achaeans. Butler is much more formal here, but Butler can afford to be. Where Pope and Lombardo are making functional poetic translations, Butler is making a formal prose translation. He's trying to capture the words themselves and what they say with doing as little violence as possible to the text in the process. To go back to our sort of Bible analogy, if the NIV is a translation that is meant for the layperson, that anybody can sit and read the NIV in their pew and be able to understand what the text means without necessarily going into in-depth word studies or something, if you are in fact a scholar of the Bible, you're probably not going to use the NIV. You're probably going to use a formal translation, something like the NASB or possibly even the King James. That was my solution in seminary. Formal translations have a much closer one-to-one language uh, similarity with the original text. So Butler, as our formal translator here, is much closer to the actual Greek wording. And the reason why he is staying true to the actual Greek wording is because he is trying to retain the Greek structure as well as the Greek meaning. But notice that there's a trade-off here. 
by including these awkward, clunky phrases like son of Peleus, you end up breaking the actual meter of the poetry. You can no longer pre preserve the dactylic hexameter because Peleadeo, which is, you know, fairly cumbersome, but fits the metered form, the, the whole foot structure of Homer's poetry here, doesn't fit when you translate it to Achilles, son of Peleus, and it just causes all this trouble because son of is just awkward and, you know, now you've got to deal with, like, son of Peleus because of the word order thing. It's a giant mess. So let's start by acknowledging that all translations are imperfect in some way. Each translation has benefits and demerits. Each translation offers something and takes away something. The disadvantage of Pope is that he is throwing the Greek text out. The advantage of Pope is that he's making a gorgeous poem in its own right. The advantage of Butler is that it is very close to a one-to-one -one translation of what's going on in the Greek text, but the disadvantage is that it absolutely gets rid of the poetic structure and the meter that we are accustomed to see. Lombardo is trying to retain that meter, trying to keep it tight and snappy, trying to make it sound a little bit like that original dactylic hexameter, but in the process he's going to have to throw out a lot of the cumbersome phrases, he's going to occasionally get a little excited about his poetic imagery, but not to the level that Pope is, because again, Pope is basically composing his own poem here. So to sort of illustrate this point, take a look at the way that um, Lombardo phrases the actual consequences of the rage here. Lombardo is especially stark and dreary. Sing Achilles's rage, black and murderous, that cost the Greeks incalculable pain, pitched countless souls of heroes into Hades' dark, and left their bodies to rot as feasts for dogs and birds, as Zeus's will was done. Now, the reason why I took, I picked Lombardo is for this reason. His imagery is nasty, just stark, simple, straightforward, and mean, and I love it, because that is exactly what Homer is doing as well here. Lombardo, by throwing out some of the Greek language, by distorting the text in certain ways and dropping some of the Homeric images and, and words, in fact manages to capture the pace, the fact that Homer is snappy, the fact that Homer is direct. Um, the thing about the difference between Greek and English is that when Greek is tr translated into English, English tends to be a lot more cumbersome. There's a lot of extra words thrown in there to make the word order work, which we'll talk about in a moment. Lombardo desperately tries to avoid that. He desperately tries to avoid all those weird ling English formulations, and in doing so, keeps his text tight, snap, snappy, and brief. And I love it. And that's why I've retained it. But keep in mind, since he's keeping it brief, we're gonna miss a lot in this translation. The style is as close to Homer as you're likely to get from one of these poems, one of these translations, but the substance may be missing the mark here. He is functional, but he is stylistically functional. Whereas another writer like Butler might be more functional to the actual one-to-one -one translation, i.e. a more formal translation. It's complicated. I don't presume to be able to explain the whole thing here. Suffice it to say that you need to be aware of this. 
many of the writers that are, we're going to look at in the Cambridge Companion to Homer, many of the articles that we read about the Iliad and the Odyssey are going to emphasize passages that just aren't there in Lombardo or are radically changed in Lombardo. Um, the translation that they use consistently throughout the Cambridge Companion to Homer, unless they say otherwise, is the Richard Lattimore translation of the 50s, which their opening to this passage kind of cuts the difference here. Um, so here's Lattimore's opening stanza. Sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus' son Achilles, and its devastation, which put pains thousandfold upon the Achaeans, hurled in their multitude to the house of Hades strong souls of heroes, but gave their bodies to be the delicate feasting of dogs, of all birds, and the will of Zeus was accomplished. Now, the advantage of Lattimore is that it kind of splits the difference between Lombardo's very terse poetry and something like, like Butler trying to do a more formal translation. Lattimore has all the words that we would expect to see. It's Peleus's son Achilles. It's pains thousandfold upon the Achaeans. Very much a formal one-to-one -one translation. But the text is so cumbersome. It's a pain in the butt. It doesn't read nearly as smoothly as Lombardo's does. Sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus's son Achilles and its devastation which put pains thousandfold upon the Achaeans. Like, that's the first two lines and we've already broken way out of the metrical form that we were establishing. We are already way away from the sort of terse, in-your-face attitude that Homer likes in his Greek and that Lombardo successfully captures in his poetry. So Lattimore is just another option. Again, all of these translations have their own goals. Lattimore is the one that the Cambridge Companion to Homer chooses because it is very formal while also retaining some elements of the original poetic structure. Lombardo is not because Lombardo is willing to take greater risks for the sake of the poetic conciseness that he's trying to capture here, that in-your-face immediacy of the text. I want you to get the sense of the Iliad even more than I want you to get the actual wording in most cases, so Lombardo is what we're sticking with. Plus, he's easier to read, which means I can make you read so many more pages in a given week, or at least that's the justification to myself. Um, so that's why we're reading Lombardo. That's the sort of vague view of some of the other options out there. I encourage you to actually look out and track down other translations of the Iliad while we're reading this, especially if there's a passage that you're going to talk about extensively in a paper or something. It would be really useful to have parallel translations sitting around so you can refer to alternatives and see depths that Lombardo is not willing to access. I'm going to be doing the same thing, and you better believe if I come across a passage that I'm particularly interested in, or a word that I find is especially important, I will be going back to the Greek and actually looking at what the word in fact is and trying to give you a better sense of what's going on there. Um, but, generally speaking, we're not going to do that. We're definitely not going to have the time to do that for all 24 books of this book. So, be aware you're getting some things and you're not getting others. The great thing about Lombardo is you're getting that terse style, but the bad thing about Lombardo is you're going to miss a lot of the phrases, epithets, and formulas. Uh, so with that in mind, let's go ahead and talk about the language here. The things that make Greek Greek and the things that English especially struggles to cover and capture in the Greek language. And the first thing we really need to talk about here is that the Greek language has a fundamentally different structure than English does. The English language is a giant mess, honestly. Like, it is a hodgepodge of a 
variety of different tra traditions. It is informed at least in part by the Germanic languages through Anglo-Saxon, and it is in part informed by the Romance languages, largely because the French got into England and wrecked up the place for a long period of time in medieval Europe. Um, so as a consequence, English is just kind of got the best and the worst of both the Romance languages and the Germanic languages, and since then we have just gone ahead and absconded with a whole bunch of different words from a whole bunch of other different languages that we've bumped into, as well as just making up words as we go along, because it's English and that's what we do. Um, it, the English language is a mess, in short. It is cumbersome, and while it can do a whole bunch of different things, it has incredible power, it the cost of that power is you got to do some crazy linguistic gymnastics in order to get your point across in some cases. It can be very precise, but it does so at the cost of extremely verbose sentences that go on forever and never seem to end. Greek, on the other hand, is elegant. It tends to be a lot less wordy. It tends to be able to say a lot more in a lot less and that doesn't mean that it can't be precise. Like, you read Plato or Aristotle or any of the ancient Greek philosophers, and you will see some positively gorgeous, precise language. But the difference here is that the Greeks have a lot of abstract concepts embodied by words that can mean multiple different things at different times, where English is like, no, we, don't, we can't deal with that shit. We need to know exactly what we're talking about at any given moment. So we're going to use precise, technical, scientific jargon in order to get our point across, rather than fuzzing about in a bunch of vague, abstract ideas. Now, this isn't always the case. Sometimes the Greeks are more specific than, than English. So, like, a classic example is that the English word love is very vague and ambiguous and covers a wide variety of relationships and emotions, where the Greeks have three words for love, i.e. eros, love that is erotic or sexual, philia, love that is friendly or brotherly, and then agape, which the Christians kind of took over and made their own, so who really knows what the Greeks actually meant to rely at, at one point in time. Um, we have just the one word, so just good luck. You use love and everybody's supposed to understand by the context what you mean there. Um, but much as this is important, this is nowhere near as significant as the fact that Greek word order doesn't flip and matter. Like, if you speak all of your words in an English sentence in the wrong order, people are going to look at you funny. Like, you're suddenly speaking Yoda-ish in this, you know, actions are... Ugh, I can't even think of a good example here. Um, when you put your verb at the end of a sentence, for example, you can't very well go around saying, you know... I to the store ran, or you will sound like Yoda. You have to say, I ran to the store, because word order is important. You know what is the subject of the sentence, because it comes first in the sentence. I. You know what the predicate, or what the object of the verb is, because of where it comes in the sentence, namely after the verb. I ran to the store. Now, if we mix up all those words, if we wrote the to store I, or the to store ran I, we might get a vague idea of what's being said. We might be able to put everything back together, but maybe not. Store ran I the two doesn't make any sense to us, and we definitely think that something is wrong. But for the Greeks, it doesn't matter. You can put the words in any order you want. The key is that each noun has a declension. 
That is, it has this little suffixy ending that is stuck onto the end of the noun to indicate what the noun is doing in the sentence. And the Greeks have a number of different declensions. You've got your subject and object declension. The, the you know, subject uh, declension will tell you that it is the thing doing the action versus the accusative declension is an indication that it is the recipient of the action. You've got the dative declension, which allows you to know that it's like something peripheral, something that we might use a preposition for. Um, so if I said, I went to the store with my friend John, the Greeks would just say, I, my friend John, store, went. And you would see by the indication on the sentence that my friend John was just somebody who was along for the ride. That would probably be a dative declension or a genitive declension. So the Greeks don't need to use all those fancy prepositions. There are no withs or throughs or therefores hanging around in the Greeks so much. Therefore you will get, but that's different and I chose it poorly. Um, a lot of those prepositional phrases will get boiled down into one fancy word for the Greeks, which is why it's so friggin' difficult to get all of that language into the proper meter and rhythm. That's why Lombardo is just going to drop so many of those phrases, because they're cumbersome in English, but in the Greek they're very elegant and nice. Um, likewise, this means that the Greeks can actually do all sorts of fancy stuff with the language because the order doesn't matter. You can make the opening sentence of the Iliad read, Rage, sing goddess, and nobody asks questions about it in the Greek. Like, if we looked at this in, the, in English, we might give them a pass because it's poetry, but if somebody literally said to you, Rage, sing goddess, Achilles, Achilles son of Peleus, you would be like, what the fuck are you saying to me? It wouldn't make sense to you. But for the Greeks, all of the words are in their proper places due to the endings. Rage is Achilles' rage. It is the object. Achilles is the subject. Peleo, Peleo, or Pele, Peleiadeo, as much as that doesn't make sense to us, Achilles, son of Peleus, because it is in the dative, immediately indicates this is a relationship to Achilles. Rather, I think this is a genitive case. My Greek is extremely rusty on that front. When we say rage, sing goddess Achilles' rage, Lombardo is taking a little bit of liberty here with the way that English grammar is supposed to work in order to make the same emphasis that Homer is emphasizing. Namely, rage is the first word of the sentence, the first word of the phrase, and the first word of the poem. Of all the translations we've looked at, only Lombardo is willing to make that move, to distort English in such a violent and dramatic way in order to get the object of the sentence into the slot where the first word is. Rage, sing goddess Achilles' rage, where someone like Pope is saying Achilles' wrath to grease the direful spring, where Butler reserves rage for literally word number five, sing O goddess, the anger of Achilles. Sing goddess the anger of Peleus' son Achilles, says Lattimore. We want to put the goddess and sing at the front of the sentence because we recognize this is the imperative voice. We are telling the goddess to sing about something. So we need to tell the goddess first, like, hey, goddess, can you sing to us of the rage of Achilles? Whereas the Greeks are just like, fuck all that noise. Rage, baby. We will have the goddess sing about rage, but rage is going to be the first thing we're going to emphasize, and therefore it is going to get all of this weight and significance in the way that the poem is structured. 
So keep that in mind as well. Like, English is going to have to abide by its conventions. Lombardo is frequently, in order to make sense of what's going on, going to have to put things like people and verbs at the front of a sentence when the Greeks don't feel that obligation at all. They can absolutely put the object of the sentence at the very beginning and just stick an ending on it that clearly designates it as the object. Notice too, though, the way that this poem is structured, that the Greeks actually repeat rage, and it becomes the first word of the first two lines, something that none of our translators gets here. So in the original Greek, it says, menin eide thea, i.e. rage sing muse, peleadeo achilleos, the rage of Achilles, son of Peleus. But the second line also begins, ulomene, which is ambiguous in its translation. It's clearly a derivation of menin, rage. But the key here in the Greek is that it is emphasized. We are doubling down on this. Rage sing muse of this rage of the son of Peleus. The emphasis here is that rage is taking such an important place in this poem that we're not only going to make it the first word of the poem, we're going to make it the first word of the, both of the first two lines. Now, several of our translators do repeat rage twice. Um, Lombardo does it by ending the first line with the word rage again. Rage, sing goddess Achilles' rage. Lattimore says, sing, O goddess, the anger of Achilles, son of Peleus. But then he abandons it. Only the one time does it show up. Um, it is emphasized or not by various translators because it doesn't make sense in English. Like, notice that Lombardo, in order to keep rage at the beginning of the, of the poem, and also to emphasize it, he basically turns it into its own line. Rage, colon, is the first line of the poem, as Lombardo has it. And thereby we understand rage is super important. Rage is what we're singing about. Sing goddess Achilles' rage. He repeats it to drive that point home. Now, he does emphasize it. Achilles' rage, black and murderous. But black and murderous... That's not anywhere in this poem in the original Greek. That is an invention of Lombardo to drive home again that emphasis because the Greeks emphasize rage and then again super duper rage. The way that Lombardo captures this is by dropping in the adjectives black and murderous. Now many of our other translators they will emphasize it is devastating or that it you know is the direful spring, as Pope puts it. Um, they're very much stressing the rage is significant, but they do so in some fairly awkward ways, something that the English really isn't equipped to capture. I like Lombardo's take on it. I like the black and murderous as much as it is just a complete invention, um, but it is not quite apt. The Greek is literally saying so much rage here. Rage is so important to what we're talking about. And I want to stress this as well. This is a huge theme. Um, in the entire poem of the Iliad, I urge you to look at rage. Homer is urging his readers to look at rage. Rage is very much the subject of this poem. Like, yeah, Achilles is the hero, maybe, and, you know, the Trojan War is obviously what we're talking about here. But over and over, uh, Homer is going to be like getting drawing our attention back to this subject of rage, anger, passion, this 
powerful emotion that overtakes heroes and causes them to do either great heroic deeds or really dumb things that get them killed. And both of these examples we're going to see in much greater detail. So be aware of this. Manin, rage, passion, anger, all-consuming berserkerdom. Um, this is the subject of the poem, and many of our most important passages are going to circulate around this subject. Now, again, Lombardo captures this. Lombardo gets at the fact that it takes this extraordinary importance in the opening lines of the poem in order to drive home how significant that will be thematically as the poem goes on. But because English, we only have the one word, rage. Whereas in the Greek, manin can be adapted and changed and manipulated in a wide variety of ways. Now, we can, in fact, do a little bit of that. Rage is the noun, but we can say enrage as a verb, and enraged as, you know, this person is in this state of being raged. That's a little creative on our part, but it does nothing in comparison to what the Greeks can do. Which brings us to the second really major difference between the Greek language and the English language, something that English is especially poorly equipped to handle. The Greeks love them some participles. And the Greek participle is all over the freaking Greek language. Like, you read anything including Homer in the original Greek, and you will find participles, 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 participles. Now, in case you do not remember your sixth grade grammar lessons, or in case they totally blew that off in sixth grade grammar, which I think is actually how things go these days, when I say participle, what I mean is a fairly complex linguistic element that combines elements of a verb with elements of a noun. So, in our English, we use words like running, you know, ing verbs, to sort of fit the position of participles. Now, admittedly, this is especially confusing because English uses ing verbs in a wide variety of ways. You can say, you know, I was running to the store when I was attacked by murderous gigolos. Um, that's a really weird thing to say, admittedly, but nonetheless, you can say it. You can make running a verb for the context of other actions that are taking place. This is, you know, various tenses and forms and stuff there. But it is, at the end of the day, the verb. What is more accurate to the participle is to say, running is my favorite sport. Um, I like running more than I like swimming. Um, notice, in that case, the word running isn't acting as a verb. Like is the verb there. I like running. Running is a noun. So this is just super confusing in English, and that's probably why your sixth grade grammar teachers weren't interested in actually trying to teach you this, because they probably have trouble understanding it as well. Heck, I have trouble understanding it, hence why I'm using all of these contrived examples. Um, but the Greeks do this all the time. Rage is a verb. Rage is a noun. Raging is a noun. Being enraged is a noun for them. Like, they can do all sorts of crazy shenanigans to make rage into a noun or a verb or both, and we just cannot keep up with that. So translating that is going to be very difficult sometimes. And some of the solutions to this mean you're going to lose some of the important elements here. 
Homer can consistently keep maining rage the theme of his entire book and have it show up as a verb, have it show up as a noun, have it show up as a participle, have it show up in various situations where it doesn't translate that neatly otherwise. Lombardo will pick up on some rage translations, and he will try very hard to make rage be the word that he's using, but sometimes it's just not going to be the best English translation. Sometimes it's just not going to translate smoothly. Um, so sometimes we're going to miss where Homer's talking about rage because Lombardo is forced to use a different word, or is forced to excise it completely, or is forced to talk about it in a completely different way. Be aware of that. This is one of the many ways that the translator is a traitor, that the translator betrays the very text that they're out to try and capture and communicate. Um, you just can't get a one-to-one -one translation of Greek into English that captures both the style and the structure and the word use and the meaning and all, and still be grammatically correct in English. It's just not going to happen. So that said, let's talk about the actual structure here. Let's talk about the way that the epic poem of Homer actually functions. And a lot of this I had you read in the article on, again, formulas, meters, and type scenes. And I don't want to repeat all of that here. I realize that talking about dactylic hexameter and talking about, you know, meter, metrical schemes and, you know, stresses versus syllable length is super duper boring. I hate that stuff. Like as much as, you know, I am a very avid reader and I do my own writing in my own time, and as much as I am interested in voice and stress and pacing and all that fun stuff, really, I am not a poet and I don't like reading poetry and I don't like all of the various words and names that we've devised in order to describe poetry. I'm not that great with that stuff. I'm not going to expect you to do the same. Um, but what I am really interested in, and what you should be really interested in, and what Homer should be very interested in, is what these things do. Like, I admittedly, before starting to teach this class and reading up on all this, all this stuff, couldn't tell you the difference between iambic pentameter and dactylic hexameter. Like, I could probably come up with a fairly creative explanation of why the two are in all likelihood different, but I definitely couldn't have told you about the specific metrical elements that we see here in Homer. Um, iambic pentameter, by the way, is Shakespeare's poetic preference. Um, it's this whole thing. We're not going to talk about it. Not here anyway. Um, the key for Homer, though, is to understand what hexameter enables him to do. What does this mean for the actual poem, both its composition and the way that it comes across to us? So, you probably should know that this is written in dactylic hexameter. You probably should know that that means that we have multiple syllables which alternate between long and short syllables. But I'm not going to like test you forever on this stuff. What's important is what does it enable Homer to do? Which brings us to the way that the beats can be doubly underscored by word breaks, i.e. what our author here in the Cambridge Companion to Homer, Matthew Clark, uh, calls seishuras. Um, now, what he notices is, apparently in much of uh, Homeric scholarship, many scholars have sort of like talked about the way that the meters work and talk about the, what the various structural components and all of this, you know, how the formulas fit into the meter and so on and so forth. 
dactylic hexameter basically means you've got these weird alternations between long and short syllables. Not beats, not like stresses the way that we would usually emphasize when we're talking about English poetry and we like very much emphasize are there a bunch of short stresses or long stresses here. Instead it's just about what is the vowel length, what is the length of the syllable. Is it a long syllable, i.e. it doesn't have a long vowel, or is it a short syllable, i.e. it has a short vowel. And notice that for Homer, the beat is long, short, short, 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 long, maybe long, maybe short. Who knows? There are six feet here, then. And each of these feet is broken up into one of these long, short, short patterns. And importantly, the long, short, short pattern can line up with either a word break or not. So in that first line of the Iliad, menin ede thea peleadeo achilleos, it doesn't follow that long, short, short meter precisely. The first line of a poem frequently won't in order to emphasize different things. But words like peleadeo does emphasize the peleadeo, i.e. long, short, short, long, achilleos, short, short, long. Um, it does, in fact, emphasize these things, but what's significant is less the matter of where are the actual beats broken up and where do the words breaking up line up with the syllables breaking up, with the feet breaking up. And importantly, just about every line in Homer will have a noticeable confluence of both the word and phrase stopping at the exact same time as the third or fourth foot will stop. This is what's called Seishura B. Um, there are essentially four slots that stuff can fit in the poem. And there are three breaks, Seishura A, B, and C, that break them up. And Seishura B is hardcore. Uh, Matthew Clark emphasizes that in something like 99 lines out of 100 lines, you are going to get a break halfway through each line. And that break will not just emphasize the words breaking off, but will even have a phrase break and will even in Lombardo usually be punctuated with a whole comma. There will be essentially two parts to every line. Now, importantly, Clark notices that there's also an A Seishura and a C Seishura, so you'll, you would, again, do have sort of like four roughly balanced parts of each line, and they will frequently be broken up into, you know, there's a very short beginning to this line, and then the rest of it is long, or there is, you know, half and half, or there is a long section followed by a short section. Um, these word breaks, these seishuras, will often divide up the meaning of these phrases. You will see there will be passages where it says things like, you know, rage sing goddess of Achilles Peleus's son. There's two obvious halves to this line, and most lines in Homer are going to have that structure, have these two obvious meanings. So in one sense, you should definitely be watching out for the way that a line begins, the word that begins a line, because that's often very important, especially since Greek doesn't have to muck about with word order the way that English does. Um, but you'll also see these breaks in phrases. So in Lombardo's translation, rage sing goddess 
Achilles's rage, black and murderous, that cost the Greeks incalculable pain, pitched countless souls of heroes into Hades' dark. Notice in each case there's a fairly obvious break halfway through the line, sometimes more obvious than others, you know, it's really clear, black and murderous, comma, that cost the Greeks incalculable pain, comma, pitched countless souls of heroes, and now we don't have one so much. Um, Lombardo is going to try to capture that as much as possible. He will occasionally succeed and occasionally fail. But notice, again, two meanings, two significant word clusters, two phrases here. Each line is effectively a a complex work. It is a combination of multiple ideas. And even when Lombardo is just making shit up, like black and murderous, notice that it fits into that structure. Now the second thing we need to sort of notice about this is that there is a significant exception to this rule. And that's what Matthew Clark calls enjambment, i.e. the end of the line kind of keeps going into the next line and breaks up the beginning of the next line. So this is obvious right from the beginning in the original Greek. Again, menin edithea peleidio achilleos is our first line, but then we repeat that word, menin, ulamene in this case, the rage of Achilles. Now this Matthew Clark even like draws out this particular example and says this is an example of tact on enjambment, i.e. we just added this one word that has more to do with the line before than it does with the line we're currently talking about. Ulaminein doesn't have anything to do with hemuri acheesis alge etheke, i.e. the suffering of the Achaeans that is brought about by this rage, but notice that because it is this separate thought, it both re-emphasizes rage, man, so much rage, and also sets up the rest of the line. This rage is the subject of this entire stanza, the subject of this line for sure, and it is now going to talk about the causes or the, the effects of this rage. This horrible rage is what caused all those Achaeans such terrible suffering. It is what caused all those stout souls to go to Hades in an untimely way. It is what is going to bring about all of these dead bodies lying on the beach which the birds and dogs are going to feast upon in accordance with Zeus's will. This is what Homer is using enjambment to do, to sort of break up the line and thus create this sort of stylistic fluidity. You know, it takes away from that da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da pattern which is otherwise very formulaic and very well structured, it introduces creativity and a sort of, you know, strange, like, non-pattern form into the structure, but it also allows him to emphasize certain words and ideas even more than they would otherwise be emphasized. Um, even later on in this passage, something that Lombardo cannot capture because it is just really out there, um, notice, again, this is the rage that's caused so much suffering to the Achaeans. It sent many stout souls to Hades in an untimely way. Notice the word there, eroon, is a verb, 
it starts the fourth line of this stanza, and it, again, re-emphasizes all of the things that have been going on with sending the souls to Hades. It is dragged to Hades, but it also is dragged and preparing the meal that is going to, you know, be eaten by the birds. Again, English cannot capture this relationship. But the emphasis here is on eroon, the preparation. Preparation of souls for Hades, preparation of bodies as meals for birds. It works for both clauses, both ideas, both phrases. And in doing so, it gets an emphasis that Homer can capture eloquently and that no English speaker can ever do the same. It's super awkward to try and word this into English. None of the translators do a very good job of capturing that dual meaning here. Um, but Homer can. That's one of the powers that is offered him by using enjambment, by breaking up the metrical formulas, by changing the way that the sentences and lines function. Now this goes along with what Matthew Clark is actually talking about here at the beginning of his essay, namely formulas. And we really need to emphasize this because this is going to be super duper clear and probably super duper annoying as well. Many times in Homer, throughout the Iliad, throughout the Odyssey, you are going to run into these formulas. Achilles, son of Peleus. Swift-footed Achilles. Zeus the Aegis-bearer. King of the gods, Zeus. Glorious Achilles, or glorious Odysseus, or glorious Ajax, or glorious Aegisthus. Like, you're going to hear these words repeated over and over and over again. These formulas, over and over and over again. Cow-eyed Hera. Swift-footed Hermes. You name it, each one of the major characters is going to have these sorts of epitaphs, as we usually call them in the Homeric business. These epitaphs serve as a brief description of the hero when the hero is described or announced. Maybe it's something very factual, like son of Achilles, or son of Peleus. Sometimes it's going to be very descriptive, swift-footed Achilles. Sometimes it's not even going to make any sense, like the gleaming dirty laundry of Nausicaa, or the really awesome, glorious Aegisthus, who also happens to be a murderer and a traitor. Um... Because there are so many of these formulas, because they are repeated so often, and because they frequently have a sense, frequently don't make sense, and frequently just seem to be there for no reason, a lot of scholars have disagreed about what the deal is with the formulas. Why do we have to hear about swift-footed Achilles over and over and over and over again? Why is the dawn always rosy-fingered? Why is, you know, Odysseus always of cunning mind? Why is it always glorious or, you know, gleaming or whatever the case may be? What do these words actually mean in this situation? And as is discussed in the article, they're apparently a fairly common function of oral poetry, which we haven't talked about yet, and we need to. Homer is written down, like... There was, in fact, a text of the Iliad and the Odyssey that our translators are working from and that many Greek commentators have worked from. There is some debate about which text is legitimate and which copy of the text is legitimate. Like, there's a whole textual criticism thing going on behind the scenes that we're just not going to talk about in this class because it's just overly complicated, not especially helpful to understanding either the, what's going on in the text or the legacy. It's this whole thing. Um, but importantly, the text is secondary. Virtually every scholar who is talking about Homer these days agrees 
that the text of the Iliad and the Odyssey were not original. Like, this poem was not first written when Homer put pen to paper or stylus to clay or whatever. Instead, this was a poem that had existed in an oral tradition for many, many years, perhaps centuries, before Homer ever put pen to paper. Writing is secondary to this oral tradition, and the poem as we have it is secondary to the oral tradition that pre-existed it. And a lot of study has been done about how oral poetry works in order to understand how Homer works. So you'll notice that Clark refers specifically to this fellow Milman Perry, who has been studying oral epic tradition in South Slavic cultures, um, and comparing the sort of tricks and ticks and strange linguistic characteristics of that poetry to the Homeric epic tradition. And this is not just Perry. Like, a lot of work has been done. Um, there, and as much as, you know, Perry is representative and Perry's study is especially detailed and therefore especially useful, there's a lot of scholars debating exactly how much does it apply, how much does it not apply, so on and so forth. But one of the really obvious things that compares Homer's epic tradition to the South Slavic tradition and other traditions around the world is that these formulas are very helpful in the composition of epic poetry. When you are trying to remember 20,000 lines, as is the case with the Iliad, and some poet is supposed to have somehow have memorized all 20,000 of these lines, that's friggin' difficult! Like, anyone who has ever performed in a play knows how difficult it is to memorize various large swaths of text. It's really difficult. An epic poet is supposed to not just remember all that stuff, but remember it without all of the helps of blocking and, you know, situation and other characters talking to you. No, they're just supposed to go for literally hours of recitation purely from memory. Now, it can be done. And in fact, Homer is pretty small potatoes compared to some of the epic po poetry traditions that are out there. Like later on in the class, when we read about epic as genre, we're going to read about the crazy Mongolian poet poetry that's like millions of lines long, and somehow these poets are still able to keep it entirely in their heads. That's crazy. But one of the ways that it is helped is you have these formulas. You remember swift-footed Achilles, rosy-fingered dawn, scheming Odysseus, Zeus who bears the Aegis. And the, these formulas, these epithets, are useful not just in helping the audience to remember this is the character who's super fast, or this is the character who's super smart, or this is the king of the gods, don't mess with him. It also helps fill in the gaps in the meter. If you are halfway through a line and you don't friggin' remember what the rest of the line is, except that you know that it has to do with Achilles, you can just drop in swift-footed Achilles, and it takes the spot. And furthermore, eventually, that becomes the way that the poem is read, the way that the poem communicates. You repeat these elements intentionally. Maybe you repeated them intentionally to begin with, because it helps the rhythm of the poem, it helps to reinforce these elements about the characters, it helps you to remember what's going on better, Everyone wins, in short. Now, that doesn't translate to the page. When you are sitting there reading the Iliad, you are reading the message that Hermes is taking to Calypso for, like, the third time in a row. You're like, God damn it, this is so boring, I can't handle this anymore. Or why does it have to be swift-footed Achilles over and over and over and over again? Well, the reason why it's there is because it used to be recited and now it's not. Oops. 
So writers like Lombardo are going to feel perfectly comfortable getting rid of those passages, just ditching Son of Peleus because it's unhelpful to a contemporary reader, and it would not be useful given what he's trying to accomplish here. But the reason why he's retained as many as he has is because they are intrinsic to the poet's structure. They help metrically, they help thematically, they help in memory. All of these things are useful. So many of these formulas, you'll notice, have a certain metrical rhythm to it. Swift-footed Achilles fits very neatly in that back half of the poem, that second half of the after the B Seishura. Or some of the, you know, descriptions like Odys or you know, Achilles son of Peleus can totally take the entire back half of the line where swift-footed Achilles might only take one of the feet or one of the blocks that the Seishura sort of works out. You'll see the same formulas occurring in the same slots in the poem, the same slots in the line over and over again, but not 100% of the time, which Clark also notices. As much as these formulas do seem to have this sort of like, we slot this formula in to fill out this particular space in the poem, it's not always that consistent. And some of the repetition is just anywhere, can go any place. So he uses the example of the description of the beach in the Odyssey, how this apparently can be slotted in all sorts of weird places, um, that it can belong in places that it doesn't normally belong. Um, so as a consequence, Clark acknowledges that it's complicated. It's more than just this ornamental decision. It's more than just this decision that allows the poet to sort of like bullshit on the fly. It's more than just this tool for helping you memorize the poem. No, it can also be a creative tool as well. By putting it in weird places, by emphasizing Zeus, the son of Kronos, as opposed to Zeus the Aegis Bearer, or Zeus Lord of the Gods, or Shining Zeus, or whatever, then you can draw connections that go outside of the poem. The Achilles, or swift-footed Achilles, yes, is very much a part of the Iliad, but notice, Achilles being fast isn't really important to Achilles through 90% of the poem. Like, as we talked about last time, Achilles spends more than half the Iliad sitting on his ass in his tent, being swift-footed doesn't seem to be a very apt description of Achilles in that situation. But it reminds you that this is who Achilles is, that Achilles' claim to fame is being really fast. And importantly, when Achilles does in fact show up and starts running with Hector around the city of Troy, all of a sudden that means more. What Homer is doing here is apparently not just dropping this formula into the poem for the sake of keeping it easy to memorize, but he's pointing to an Achilles that is bigger than his appearance in the poem. An Achilles who has other myths about him, other traditions about him, other grand stories about him. Clark emphasizes that these little sort of quick drops, like Zeus, son of Kronos, even though Kronos never appears in this poem, is an indication that, yeah, this is the same Zeus who was the son of Kronos, who overthrew his father in order to gain control of the Olympian universe, who, you know, kicked the butt of the Titans and kicked the butt of the awful giants and kicked the butt of Typhus. Like, all of these things are attributed to the same guy, and Homer will emphasize this, will point to these other elements. 
For our purposes, think of it the same way as you think of these kinds of references and allusions in the Marvel Cinematic Universe or something. You know, when Doctor Strange shows up in Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, and he makes reference to his pre-existing girlfriend, who he is no longer with, you can make a connection to that, because you remember the first movie. Or you remember that time that Doctor Strange saved the universe from Thanos with his careful planning. Like, there's all of these little hidden references in the movies, and for us, they're intended to make us go, Oh yeah, I saw that, I remember that, I feel excited, I feel good for knowing how smart I am, for recognizing this tiny little reference. The Greeks would have done something similar here. When Homer says, Zeus, son of Kronos, he's not going to stop and explain the whole story of the Titanomachy. But for you, who knows about the Titanomachy, you're like, Oh shit, yeah, I remember that, that was awesome! And now you feel better, and you have a deeper connection to this poem. The poem invokes a greater world of mythology and lore surrounding the poem. It's the same thing that Tolkien does in Lord of the Rings. It's the same thing Frank Herbert does in Dune. It's the same thing that the Marvel Cinematic Universe does all the time. It's the same thing that George Lucas does in Star Wars and that Kathleen Kennedy has done since George Lucas has nothing to do with Star Wars anymore. This is an important component of our psychological engagement with a poem in many ways. And as much as Homer is dropping these formulas in for metrical purposes or ornamental purposes or whatever other reasons we might have, Clark hypothesizes that there is something bigger going on here, that it is both and. That Homer is using something because it looks nice and sounds nice and helps us to remember things, but also because it connects to this whole other world that the Greeks would have been very familiar with. Now, if you have any questions about these epitaphs, feel free to ask me, because I know you're not plugged into that world, and I want you to feel comfortable with this as much as I can in the time that we have. So if you want me to tell you the story of the Titanomachy, we'll tell the story of the Titanomachy. If you want to know what the deal is with Ajax, I'll try and figure out what the heck the deal is with Ajax. If you were trying to figure out what the Aegis is and why it's so important that Zeus carries it, we'll talk about that. Because for the Greeks... This is a reference. This is something that points to their bigger experience. Since you lack that experience, I kind of got to provide it for you as much as I possibly can. So watch for that in Lombardo's translation of the Iliad as well. Notice how he is, through Homer, or rather Homer through Lombardo, is pointing to this greater world of mythic tradition. This greater series of histories about the gods, the goddesses, the heroes, their relationships to one another, and everything that's going on. Sometimes Homer will just straight up tell the story. Like, we will get many times when Nestor decides to tell a story about the Argonauts, or tell a story about Heracles, or tell a story about any number of other awesome heroes. And that's great. That's super helpful. But other times it's just going to be those little couple of beat references. Zeus, son of Kronos. Odysseus of the Clever Mind. Um, Crooked-minded Kronos is one of my favorites from Hesiod, although I'm not sure it comes up in Homer so much. Um, so know that as much as these formulas are annoying, there is a purpose for them. And if you are familiar with that purpose, it can make the poem even more powerful, even more significant. But let's not stop at just the words here. Let's also emphasize that Homer is going to repeat more than just little throwaway epithet phrases. He's also going to repeat whole scenes whole activities, whole rituals. Um, Clark notices that there are multiple what he calls type scenes, scenes that recur over and over again throughout the Iliad and the Odyssey. He even gives us a whole list of them. In fact, he gives us multiple lists of them. 
Um, one of the ones that he specifically dwells on is the, the gearing up scene, the warrior arming himself. And he looks at four different scenes in the Iliad, one where Paris arms himself in chapter 3, one where Agamemnon arms himself in chapter 11, one where Patroclus arms himself in chapter 16, and one where Achilles arms himself in chapter 19. And he emphasizes they're all different. But they all walk through the same beats. First you put on your greaves, then you put on your breastplate, then you take your shield, then you take your spear, and now you're ready to go. But different characters will do it in different ways, and different elements will be introduced to emphasize different things. So, for example, when Patroclus starts picking up all of the sweet armor that belongs to Achilles, Homer will stop to note that Patroclus can't carry Achilles' spear, because it's too big for him. Like, Achilles is a super-duper crazy badass, Patroclus is, eh, fine. He's heroic, he's awesome in his own right, but he's nothing compared to Achilles, so he can't carry the spear. So this is a significant beat there. It changes the way that the repetition works by introducing this element that is specific to Patroclus and emphasizing how poorly equipped Patroclus actually is when he's going on to, into battle. That this is, to some degree, inappropriate. It emphasizes Patroclus's weakness, thus presaging the fact that this dude's going to die. Likewise, you'll have all of these scenes that are totally different. Ritual scenes, like Hecuba taking the robe to Athena, or pouring out a libation to Zeus when somebody is about to do something dangerous. A lot of this stuff is also repeated. And Clark emphasizes here as well that that's probably because there's a ritual element to this poem as well which is something that is really difficult to sort of get at in the contemporary world. But as much as we talk about Homer as a poet, we also need to acknowledge Homer is also kind of a priest. Like, the two functions weren't that different in the ancient world. And the same people who were writing these epic stories about heroes like Gilgamesh or Achilles or Heracles were also the same people who were performing the rituals, performing the sacrifices, and the retelling of the poetry, in whatever form they are, was itself a form of worship. We need to recognize this, and we need to acknowledge this in the Iliad when all of these weird things happen that we can't seem to explain, or when Homer goes out of his way to do something that doesn't make sense from a culture, or to us, in a culture that is all about engagement and excitement and, you know, ramping up our emotional investment. Homer is going to stop dead in the middle of important passages of the poem and describe shit that we don't think is important. And largely because it is important to him, and in fact is important to the gods. The reason why you sit and listen to an epic poet tell the story of an Iliad for hours on end is because it is sacred, because it is holy, because it is part of performing a ritual that worships and acknowledges the gods. The Greeks do this all the time. They recapitulate stories, either by telling them, or reenacting them, or putting on plays that reenact them, all the time in order to honor the gods. In all likelihood, Homer's inclusion of certain repetitive passages, certain type scenes as Clark describes it, is in fact an act of worship. It is an acknowledgement of the heroism of Agamemnon or Achilles, and, in portion, a memorial, a worshipping of them. It is retelling the story of these heroic deeds so they are not forgotten, so they are kept close to heart. 
being remembered is really important to Achilles. It's part of his whole honor complex, as we'll talk about. He is willing to give up his life because he knows he will be immortalized in songs and stories. Homer is undertaking a sacred duty by recapitulating this story, by retelling the story. As much as Clark emphasizes that the scenes are repeated, we have to remember the whole poem is repeated over and over and over again, orally for hundreds of years, and then in writing for thousands more. The fact that we are sitting in this class talking about Homer 3,000 years after the poem was composed is, at least in small part, a participation in a ritual that the Greeks in started off thousands of years ago. We are holding Achilles' memory sacred in some way. We still, on some level, believe that this is important. Now, it may be important to us for completely different reasons than it was to Homer. Obviously, we are not terribly interested in making sure that Zeus is happy and that, you know, the gods are pleased and that Achilles' memory lives on for the sake of Achilles. We are interested in it because linguistic merit or literary merit or whatever. Um, we'll talk about that in its own time. But suffice it to say that the act of repetition is for Homer and the Greeks itself an act of worship, an act of holiness. It's the same as when everybody stands up in church and recites the, whole, the Lord's Prayer, or when everybody stands up and they recite the Gospel, or when everybody stands up and certain verses are repeated over and over again, when everybody says the Apostles' Creed, or when everybody says Amen. All of these are ritualized. And we need to recognize that the Greeks are doing much the same thing, and we are seeing it done in Homer. As much as this is an epic heroic myth, this is also sacred storytelling. This is not exactly the same as scripture is to the two Christians and Jews, but it is comparable. Homer, in telling this story, either orally or in writing, is doing something holy. And holiness is all wrapped up in ritual, in tradition, in repetition. And all of that is embodied in the very style and structure of the text. Part of, you know, why there are all those formulas is because of all the reasons we talked about. Maybe it's aesthetic, maybe it's for memory purposes, but it's also because it's holy. Because this is the way that it is done. Because this is how you preserve the sacred meaning of the text in some sense. Now, there are other devices that we also need to talk about here, although we don't have a lot of time to get into it. First and foremost, you've got to watch out for those epic similes. This is one of the most characteristic elements of Homeric epic. Frequently, in the middle of a battle scene, or in the middle of a description, or in the middle of just somebody doing something, Homer is going to stop right in the middle of what he's doing and give us this huge, long comparison. Achilles was like this, or Zeus was like that, or the killing of Sarpedon was like something else. Now, frequently, our guy Lombardo is going to give us a description in italics. Um, he's going to, like, literally stop the text and give us a whole different passage. So, for example, this is just, like, me randomly pulling up a random page that has one of these. On page 78 in book 4, this is around line 450, we have one of our heroes jumping down from his chariot and the, or I think this is Diomedes who's like charging forward, and we get this description. 
A swollen wave pushed by the west wind moves closer and closer to a thundering beach. It crests in deep water and then breaks onto the shore with a huge roar and curls over and around the jutting rocks in a spray of brine. So too, wave after wave of Greek battalions moving into combat. These epic metaphors are very common in Homer. He will employ them often. But notice the way that they work. He stops everything short. We're literally seeing Diomedes jump down from his chariot in full metal. The clang of bronze on his chest as he moved out would have unnerved anyone. A swollen wave pushed by the west wind moves closer and closer. Like, we don't even get in a glimpse of what is being compared until the comparison is over. We get this image of the wave pushed by the west wind crashing over and over against the shore. That's how the Greek battalions are moving into combat. So... Don't get thrown by the epic metaphor here. These are classic images. They are considered very characteristic of Homer's behavior, um, of Homer's style and substance here. Notice that it does provide a break in the action and a break in the structure. Um, it sort of punctuates important scenes, draws emphasis to them, as well as being just friggin' vivid images in many cases. Sometimes they mean even more. Um, like, we're not going to read the chapter in the Cambridge Companion to Homer on epic simile, although it is worth a read, especially if you're going to talk about that in one of your papers down the road. Um, but notice, especially when some of these images seem particularly apt. So, for example, when the Greek battalions are moving towards the Trojans and they are compared to waves beating on the shore, notice the imagery here reinforces the setting. Here are the Greeks on the beach moving inland towards the Trojans, and it is like the waves crashing against the shore. There is parallelism. If you imagine it, it can be doubly vivid because you can see the thing being compared against with the thing being compared at the same moment. Imagine the Greeks marching up the shore as the waves crash onto the shore behind them. There is duality to this. And the epic metaphors frequently have greater significance than might at first be appeared. And that was just me picking a random one. Like, imagine if I had actually intentionally grabbed one that was super important or something. Um, notice that these similes are significant in that way, that they serve both to make the image more vivid, but also occasionally bring up thematic depth or emphasize certain character characteristics of the characters that are being discussed. There's lots of depth there. Now, a lot of people talk about this as an epic register as well, that, like, these lapses into grand similes are somehow removed. Like, this is an indication of how important these scenes are, how significant these battles are, and so on and so forth. And yeah, there's definitely an element of that, especially in Lombardo's prose, where Lombardo goes so far out of his way to stress how simple and terse Homer's language is. Those epic similes seem especially out of place. Now, again, we talked about this a little bit in the past. Many scholars have argued that you're supposed to read Homer as this highfalutin work of art, that it is something that is always supposed to be removed from us. We are supposed to read Homer the way that the Greeks in 400 BC read the 400-year-old Homer before then. And again, I tend to disagree with this. I do think that the epic similes provide pretty indisputable proof that Homer will occasionally adjust his register to emphasize important moments in the text, but it's by contrast I should emphasize. 
not because it is just part of part and parcel of the whole thing. I don't think Homer wrote an entire giant poem in epic poetry. I think that these moments emphasize the scope and epicness of the poetry, the importance of the moment, against a poetry that is much more terse, much more informal, much more commonplace. I think Lombardo captures that contrast, and that that's an important element, even if it is even more contrasted here than it would be in a more traditional translation. So be aware of that. Like, as much as it is very tempting to gloss over the similes, and you should definitely be aware of the context of the similes, like, don't get too caught up on them if they're throwing you. Um, definitely, like, root yourself in what is being compared first, because, again, Homer can play with the words in a way that English simply can't. Um, that, like, get comfortable with the similes, get practiced at sort of incorporating them into your understanding, and dwell on them a little bit. Let them sink in. Try and appreciate the whole robustness of them when it is appropriate. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is the speeches. Um, again, there's another chapter in the Cambridge Companion to Homer that is all about the speeches. Um, this is another one of those that's a little weird here. Um, most other poetry that we have from this period in time doesn't care so much for speeches like this. Like, Hesiod does not dwell on character speeches. He typically prefers narrative description. But you'll have speeches in Homer that go on for whole pages. Um, like, Achilles will get wound up and he'll just go and go and go for a page and a half or more. Um, or you'll have these characters, like, insulting each other across the battlefield in grand passages of, of like, invective and description. Um, it's kind of hard to say exactly what the deal is with the speeches here. Homer is definitely making a stylistic choice here. Something that you're probably more familiar with in something like Shakespeare, where the characters will frequently just like wander off on their own and then soliloquize for half an hour. You know, to be or not to be, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows, and so on and so forth. Um, we don't usually like that in our writing. We want our dialogue to be more realistic, and we generally consider speeches to be unrealistic. People do not, in fact, sit and talk for an hour and a half at a time, just into a microphone for no good reason, as though there were listeners, even if, in fact, there aren't, and he's actually just looking out the window at a gray, gloomy, rainy day. It's really weird. It's like the middle of June, and it's so cold. Um, anyway, this is unrealistic. Nobody ever does that, so that's not a thing. Um, maybe speeches will actually become more popular in the age of podcasts and YouTube monologues and stuff like that. Um, who's to say? Um, but at any rate, in Homer, Homer just drops them in wherever he wants. Get used to them. Be aware that these speeches aren't meant to inform us about the characters, and that, as a consequence, these characters are surprisingly rich. Like, in most Greek mythology, when you were reading Apollodorus's quick descriptions or something, you don't get this much insight into the way that characters work. And in fact, a lot of these sorts of speeches are going to show up in later Greek developments, like the tragic tra uh, tradition, where you've got all of these characters, you know, standing on stage, talking about their woes for a whole page and a half. You'll see that a little bit in Euripides. Um... It is unrealistic, but it is significant to Homer to have these characters tell our feelings in this way. Um, just take it in stride. See what the characters are in fact telling us. Show 
notice how the characters' speeches will bounce off of one another, how they will pick up on elements from the speeches of other characters and change them or manipulate them or fight them, as the case may be. Um, this is one thing that Lombardo absolutely nails. Like, again, speeches are fairly common in, in English poetry and, and literary, literature, so, you know, it's not too far of a reach on this one. Um, but yeah, that's our basic take on the whole Homeric style and structure thing. What I want to emphasize is not that these things are there, and I do not want to, like, spend lots and lots of time studying the intricacies of say Shura A, if or if not it exists, so on and so forth. What I want to look at is the function. Think about what this poem is causing you to think, causing you to feel, how it's causing you to react. If you are bored, acknowledge that boredom. If you are excited, acknowledge that excitement. When you are feeling emotional, when you are feeling, you know, sad for the characters or empathetic, or when you hate one character or another, think about that. Think about how Homer's style, communicated as much as it can be through Lombardo, is causing you to do this. And again, Lombardo's a pretty good litmus test for this. This is what he gets so right. As much as Lattimore might get the language right, and as much as, you know, like somebody more formal like Butler might be able to get the specific wording right down, the great thing that Lombardo does is he gets the spirit of it. He gets the emotional content of it. So reflect on that. Think about what these stylistic decisions, whether it's the break in the lines allowing it to have two parts, or the epic metaphors, or the big speeches by various characters, or the weird enjambments sort of like interrupting the flow of the poetry, whether it's the repeated formulas and epithets, or just weird repetitions coming out from nowhere, think about this stuff. Think about what it communicates, whether how it drives home important points that Homer is trying to make, how it makes those emotional moments even more painful to sit through, um, how it makes the suffering or the horrific violence even more gritty and real. And yeah, there's going to be a lot of that. Like, I know that we are all very excited and the 21st century about like gritty violence and like R-rated movies and we want all our superheroes to like beat the shit out of people and stuff apparently. Homer will definitely make you cringe at multiple times. His descriptions of violence are occasionally very graphic and realistic. And part of that is probably to just shake things up because he's literally going to describe people getting killed by spears and arrows and stuff hundreds of times by the end of this poem. But yeah, it's shocking how vivid some of these deaths and violent scenes actually are. Like Diomedes throwing the rock that crushes Aeneas's hip bone is one of my favorites. Plus Hector gets an absolutely wonderful wound at the end of, of um at the end of the Iliad. Uh, yeah, be aware, some of this gets pretty pretty violent. Um, we'll talk about that in some more detail next time. Um, for next time, though, we actually start reading the Iliad. Enough preface, enough description, enough me talking at you. Let's actually dig into this thing and see what we have. Um, I should warn you, though, that our very first reading is books one and two, and book two is a mess. Um, for reasons that we will discuss in greater detail next time. Uh, book two includes the famous list of all of the Greek ships and all of the Trojan allies and all of the various kings and important people who showed up to the battle. Um, it is not fun reading. Uh, it is by far the longest book in the entire Iliad. 
Uh, like, it's a whole 990 lines in our edition, um, compared to the usual five to 600 that tend to be most, most books. Um, don't get bogged down in the names. Don't worry about it. Like, feel free to just kind of skim it, blow through. Um, honestly, when I told my friend that I was teaching the whole Iliad, he's like, well, you're not going to teach all of book two, are you? And I'm like, damn straight I am. Um, we'll talk about what the deal is with book two next time, but just for now... Don't let it get you down that you're reading 50,000 names for, like, 500 lines. Um, just get through it, and we'll move on. The important thing to focus on is the situation. Get the setup, get the characters, notice their interactions with each other, notice how the plot is moving forward, notice how Homer is using his stylistic elements and stuff to, to get all this done. That's what we're going to talk about predominantly next week. So, book one and two for next time. Time to actually start reading this sucker. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are as well.